Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I am Doug Stewart, and I am joined once again by my fellow co-author and champion of applied libertarianism, Dick Clark. Dick, thanks for joining me. Howdy, howdy. We are going to talk about social justice. Why are we going to talk about social justice, Dick? Well, for one reason, because we have a chapter in our book about it. Actually, I think that is the reason. <laughs> I don't know if there's a second reason for it. <laughs> what do I win, Doug? <laughs> well, you know what? How about I have you on again to talk about immigration? Okay, I'll take it. All right. That's uh, immigration for winning that. So, yeah, so the series here, folks, if you haven't listened to previous episodes, is all about reviewing and getting sort of an author commentary take background story on the particular chapters in our new book, Faith Seeking Freedom, Libertarian Christian Answers to Tough Questions. And it's over 100 questions, Q&A format. There's a synced answers given. It's written in conversational format as well so that it's easy to read in you know, a couple of days if you wanted to just sit and read it. But you can also jump around. But what we're trying to do here is give a little bit of a backstory, a little bit of an insider's look, probably the closest thing to, hey, I wonder who wrote that chapter or who wrote those questions because we don't really spell it out on who wrote them. So one of the reasons that we had this chapter, which is chapter nine, which is about social justice, is there are a lot of Christians who are very much enamored with the concept of the common good, words like human flourishing, and of course, the more politically charged term social justice. And there's a lot of confusion over what those terms mean. They mean different things. They overlap in certain ways. They're related. And there are a lot of Christians who are into those topics and, you know, in and of themselves are not bad to be into, but properly clarifying, you know, what do we do with social justice? Because a lot of times the idea of individual liberty, free markets, capitalism, libertarianism as a package doesn't seem to be wholly concerned with social justice. And as Christians, shouldn't we be concerned with social justice? So there's a lot of questions surrounding that that we tackle in the book. Now, there's just a handful of questions in the book, I should say, that we tackle. And there's a lot of thoughts and clarity that we provide in other chapters. So, for instance, one of them is immigration, which isn't part of the social justice chapter. It actually has its own chapter. And we have other things like public goods and services and, you know, other things related to the poor. But what we talk about in the chapter on social justice is the idea of what is it that we are aiming for? And so I want to read a quote to start off that we have at the top of the chapter. And this is sort of the reason why we care about the political idea of social justice. This is a Thomas Sowell quote. And basically he's saying that in the quest for social justice, quote, human beings are sacrificed to the tyranny of visions because those sacrifices are not the same as those exhilarated by the vision. And that's the end of the quote. So Sowell's book, The Quest for Cosmic Justice, I believe that's where that's quoted from, he really gets into the idea and he really pushes it's like these people who have vision about, ah, let's pursue social justice are not the same people who are affected 
by the agenda of those who say, ah, let's pursue social justice. So, Dick, I'm sure you know very well that there are all kinds of, quote unquote, good intentions going on at state levels. But there's a lot of problems with the policies that they tend to enact. Am I right? Well, that's right. And the problem is when we have central planning, little mistakes have really big consequences, right? And it can be totally well-intended that when you make a decision to enact a certain policy, but when you go out and enforce that policy across all of society, if it's a bad policy, you can have catastrophic results. And sometimes it's impossible to really know what the good policy is. And of course, as libertarians, we'd say that's because there shouldn't be a centrally planned policy. (laughs) But, you know, if we look to communist China and all of the programs that they ran for the eradication of what they considered agricultural pests. You know, they famously included the uh, sparrows among the pests that they thought were eating grain. But it turned out the sparrows were actually eating all of these insects that, upon the absence of the sparrows, decimated the crops, caused massive famine, deaths of millions, all because people implemented a well-intended policy, and it was people who weren't in a position to know what the heck they were doing. And guess what? They still had a gun to enforce that wrong-headed but well-intended policy. And we see it in all sorts of other examples of public policy where there are these negative unintended consequences that stem from it. And I think that right now, you know, we've just come out of this year-plus period of pandemic crisis And there are all of these social programs that have just all been shot up on steroids, right? And now there's all these people that were eligible for benefits who weren't previously eligible or who are now receiving enhanced benefits because of the extension or expansion of the program under these temporary, quote unquote, emergency measures. And of course, when we go look at restaurants now, some of them are closing down an extra day a week because they can't fill out the roster. And I can tell you my neighbor runs a restaurant and he is not any kind of a monocle wearing, top hat wearing, you know, capitalist tyrant or anything. He's a really good guy and uh, I'm sure he's a great boss, but he just can't get staff to come in there because the price of staying home isn't what it used to be. Mm. Again, it's not that we wanted to destroy the economy or make it impossible to run a restaurant. People were trying to help folks, right? It was well-intended. But when we don't understand what the economic implications of these policies are, then we've got a real problem. And so we need to examine that if we're going to try to wax eloquent on these topics, especially (laughs) when we say those uh, deceivingly uh, pleasant words, there ought to be a law, right? There ought to be a law. Oh, my goodness. Ah, terrible, terrible. So one way that I think about whether or not something is social or just is whether or not the institution created to address a particular problem or to meet a certain need. And I don't necessarily mean need as in like people are destitute and are trying to meet that need, but just like general needs and, you know, for people, because we all have needs, is whether or not those actually enable human flourishing, whether they actually serve people. So the analysis comes with the institutions that we want to have. And, you know, the conversation for a libertarian always starts with, well, how do we do that privately? And by privately, we mean individuals coming together, either, you know, in small groups, maybe even large groups, and doing something that actually serves somebody, rather than just doing it because they have the power to do so. And there's no sort of test as to whether or not there's an effectiveness to either, you know, this new institution, like a new department of whatever in the government. So 
the question that we have to ask with respect to social justice is what is social and what is just? And if we kind of merge those in a like, oh, social justice just means something that I can imagine it means because those terms kind of seem to go well together. Right. We're really going to get really off the reservation, as it were. Well, and so I, I like to talk about justice as something that you can be compelled to do or not to do. And I usually contrast it with the term morality, which is what we ought to do, right? And so I ought to be a, a kind and long-suffering person and not quick to anger and all that stuff. And I say all that stuff. I don't mean to be glib. That's all very important. But I can't be compelled to be those things, right? I can't be compelled by the threat of violent force to be a kind person. But there are some things that I can be compelled. You know, it's just to compel me not to violate the rights of others by striking them physically, right? Or by stealing their stuff or, you know, other things that implicate their rights. And so justice, I think, is about what we can use force, the limited cases where we can use force to uh, enforce right and wrong. And there's many, many things that implicate right and wrong, but do not violate the rights of others, and so therefore aren't part of the justice conversation. And really, what social justice does is it tries to reach those same sort of moral goals, I think, that in a lot of ways, puritanical impulses of the right try to, right? The idea that alcohol and drugs ought to be strictly controlled or prohibited by the government, really, we associate that more with the right than the left these days, right? But very much that's about trying to use government to achieve these ends that really aren't about people's rights being implicated, but it's about achieving some more desirable social vision of the future that the do-gooders want to achieve, right? And so it's not a phenomenon that's unique to the left or unique to the right. It just comes down to what are the things that you're most concerned about? And with some people, it's the neighbor's yard and some people, it's the neighbor's dog and some people, it's how the neighbor's kids are being educated, right? And Mm -hmm. so different people have (laughs) different goal lines where they're trying to score points, but it really is the same basic problem that we libertarians describe, which is that central planners just can't do it. It's just not the best way to solve the problems that we see. And of course, as Christians, we know even better than just the -the run-of-the-mill libertarian that the church, in fact, has a very important part to play. And we are directed as believers to take part in, you know, benevolent activities that lift up the poor and reach out to uh, the oppressed and the widow and the orphan and the immigrant. Uh, And we are called to do that, but we're not called to do it with the sword. When you hear the term common good, Dick, what do you... What is your reaction when people talk about, you know, the common good? My reaction is I just wish I could give those people a gift certificate to a class on why utilitarianism is bad. Uh, because, <laughs> you know, the, the same reason that we can't have socialist central planning, I mean, it's very closely related to the reason that this idea that we can add up all the pluses and minuses in society and come up with what the common good is just is a wrong-headed idea. Mm-hmm. And it's a calculation problem, right? We can't rationally you know, accumulate and tabulate and analyze data about, you know, how much utility people have derived from all these different, you know, forks in the road and decisions that, you know, people have confronted and have made. And so you just cannot conduct the hedonistic calculus that utilitarianism wants you to conduct. 
And so really what happens when people operate under utilitarianism, in my opinion anyway, is that most of them just find a way to rationalize the end that they want to you know, rationalize. And then that gives them license, basically, to use their desired means. Yeah. And so I have a problem with that. And of course, there's the similar issue with central planners, right? You can't actually, just from some office in a government building, you can't just figure out, you know, pull out of the ether what the right amount of nails is to produce and what the right amount of hot dogs is to produce and all that other stuff, right? That's something we really need to market for. And it's not that the person in that office isn't trying to do a good job. You've just given them a task that it's impossible for them to mm. achieve. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we love the idea of relief for the poor. We just know that you're both going to create more poor people and you're going to provide actual relief to fewer of them if you use state means, compulsory means, rather than, you know, benevolent voluntary means. Yeah, I wonder whether or not we often sacrifice in our minds the the short-term gain that we see. So, for instance, I have no doubt that the programs enacted by the federal government and various state governments have affected people in positive ways over the last year during the COVID pandemic in 2020 and into 2021. Those policies have helped people, okay? Just on their own, they've helped people. I don't have any problem admitting that. That doesn't mean it was the optimal policy. It doesn't mean it actually promoted human flourishing. It doesn't mean that it actually contributed to the common good because in the end or in the long run, we might be way worse off here in about a year or two or however long because of these policies. And so there's, of course, as you know, when we talk about calculation, there are trade-offs and the trade-off for, hey, look at all these people we're helping in 2020 while we're not working or while there's a pandemic. You know, those solutions, I should say, have trade-offs. Well, that's right. And, you know, you led with a quote and uh, one good quote deserves another. And this will probably be a familiar one to uh, the Libertarian Christian Institute crowd, but it's, you know, from C.S. Lewis's theory of humanitarian punishment, And right? He said, of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. It may be better to live under robber barons than under omnipotent moral busybodies. The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep. His cupidity may at some point be satiated. Those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. And so maybe the, the person who thinks they're a do-gooder is the most dangerous kind of villain, yeah. especially when they're given the tools of, of the state to carry out their plans. Yeah. You know, I don't want to take too much time talking about this specific year in general, but I want to make a comment on that whole idea of moral busybodies. I really do believe that a lot of the, the mindset of the culture in the past year where people were like, just put on your mask or just do this or just do that or just comply or just stay home. You know, it's all for the, that people who are outraged when people are walking outside without a mask on in, you know, April of 2020. I think part of it is that they just can't stand that other people have moral agency and can see the world differently. And they are very much enthusiastic about the fact that their governor just told everyone that it's punishable with a fine to not wear a mask in a public space or something like that. And so there's this like, I want other people to behave a certain way. And in a way, I kind of get it. I mean, I want people to behave in a certain way too. I want them to leave me alone. <laughs> and I also have my own things. It's like, oh, I really want more people to be charitable. I really want more people to give more time to the poor or whatever. Like there are those positive I wish people did this kind of things. I just simply 
know my place. And I know that that's, that's not, they're not me and I'm not responsible for them. I'm responsible for me. So when it comes to the concept of social justice, the common good, Norman and I have talked about this, Dick, about being the most improved unit. And like, you know, we can only improve ourselves. And by doing so, we testify and witness to the the growth that God is working in our lives. And that is a way for us to improve the lives of others as well. So that's kind of all the comment I have there on on the common good. Yeah, well, and I, you know, libertarians care about the common good. It's just that, as Rothbard put it, and this is the Dick Clark paraphrase, you know, there, there's a happy coincidence that, you know, the most just society also is the most prosperous society, right? That following the laws that are innate in human nature that we as Christians believe were put there, you know, by God, following those rules and abiding by them actually turns out to make people better off, right? And we do live in a society right now where the average person commits less of their labor to the task of getting food in their belly for the year than ever before in human history, right? And poverty is rarer than ever before in human history. And those are wonderful things to celebrate. And we should really get people to look with us at the evidence for why there's prosperity and, and how we're lifting people out of poverty. And that, in fact, these are the results of markets, these developments, and it's not the result of just more state programs. And in fact, there's an opportunity cost from the expense of state programs and the cost of those interventions. And, you know, one of them is literally we're slowing down the rate at which we, the markets lift people out of poverty. And that directly implicates social justice. And then, of course, we can talk about the expense of the correction system and the injustice of who gets, you know, the business end of those state guns, right? Who ends up in the prisons and how that intersects with all of these social justice concerns. But of course, you know, it all comes back to the fact that central planners have created these terrible systems, these terrible institutions that now we're trying to treat the symptoms of in many cases. And, you know, we're, uh, we're over here as libertarians trying to strike at the root, right? Well, that transitions us into a similar topic when we talk about how people, you know, solve problems is we have Christians looking at the early church. They had a lot of people had needs. The church was growing, and there's this phrase, they shared all things in common. Dick, that looks a lot like socialism to me. How about you? (laughs) Well, you know, (laughs) these days, when people refer to socialism, they're almost always referring to state socialism, meaning compulsory socialism. And it doesn't look like compulsory socialism to me. It looks like people who were so devoted to the common cause of sharing and spreading the gospel and ministering to other believers and especially new believers who are being brought into that family, that all of their goods were devoted to it. Now, we know that it wasn't universal among the early church that all personal property was committed to some you know, church trust or something like that because we have all these stories about people like for example, Ananias and Sapphira, right, who had property under their independent control that they then had the authority to sell. And of course, the problem was they made big pledge and then didn't deliver on the complete pledge and acted like they did, right? And so, but that there, you know, demonstrates that there was still private property. I don't think that in any way supports this idea that we can compel people with the sword to surrender their property 
because in Acts, the early church is described as having all things in common. The comment that I often make is like, it was 100% voluntary. So if you can get all Americans on board, I'm okay with that. Like, I, I won't join you. So I guess by default, you're not going to get all Americans on board. But, right. you know, like, at what point does this become coerced ethics? Well, and there were coordination problems, right? I mean, we had to create the office. And I say we, I mean, God ordained the office <laughs> of the deacon within the church to facilitate the equitable provision of benevolent, you know, help, right? And, and it was not just the Jewish widows, but the Greek widows who needed to be attended to. And guess what? Once you are washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, we're all in the royal family, right? And there isn't any preference for, you know, Jew or Gentile once you're covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's what that recognized. But again, I, I think it's sort of clear that there were coordination problems from the start. And that's why God continues to, you know, ordain the family as a basic unit that's really different from all other units because the family is where we do hold things in common still, right? And a marriage, I think, is rightly viewed as a merger. And that's how children are provided for. But once children leave, they're making their own decisions and so on. And, and there's not any sort of communal aspect to it. And again, the key thing, as you pointed out, is, is it's voluntary. Yeah. When we use guns and we have people who are unrelated and we're forcing them to participate, guess what? Favorites get picked and the policies are crafted accordingly. And that has an ugly result every time. So then let's talk about how do we accomplish the needs of the poor when I hear this often from left-leaning, I was about to say libertarians, left-leaning Christians who are not libertarians who say, oh, but private charity could never cover you know, the needs of the poor. And, you know, it's usually in response to people saying, well, that's not the government's job, that's the church's job, mm -hmm. or that's individuals who happen to be Christians, or other individuals who happen to be, you know, have a special burden for serving the needs of those on the margins. Sure. And so my initial response on the one hand is like, well, maybe you're right. Maybe every single charitable organization in the United States could not technically serve the needs of every single person who has a need in the United States. Like in the one sense, okay, maybe they're right. On the other, it's like, but wait a second, is this a fair comparison? Because you and I both know that private charities by and large, and I, I want to say for the most part, but I, I, that sort of undersells it, but by and large are way more effective, efficient, less wasteful. They're more productive. And that's not a trivial matter to consider. But Dick, I think you know what the problem is when the government gets involved in the mission of what the mission of the church might be. Well, right. And of course, there's the, the dual problem of the state not being a useful tool to accomplish the charitable purpose and people wrongly looking to the state as the savior of sorts rather than looking to God and his church, right? And so I, they're both important problems. And the fact is, I don't think that Christians ought to withhold charity from somebody who isn't yet a professing Christian, right? We should help believers and unbelievers alike, although I do think we have a special duty to those within our church that we look after them and take care of them, and they're in our charge, in a sense, when somebody joins our congregation. But generally, we're to open our door to the stranger, right? And, you know, ancient Israel, of course, had provision for gleaners and so on. And we've talked about that in a previous episode. But I think there's supposed to be not just leaving a little more 
out for folks in the form of, of gleaning opportunity, but there's supposed to be purposeful action to reach out to people who are in need because we know that in addition to their material needs, they also have a spiritual need and we need to minister to them on all of those fronts. And, you know, I, uh, I'm the product of people who believe in that. My dad helped run a home for alcoholics in New Orleans for Volunteers of America when he was in seminary. And my mom helped run a home for unwed mothers, you know, single moms who were out of their family home and needed a place to be and needed uh, access to medical care and job training and that sort of thing. And I do think that there's just something special about private charity, about a cheerful giver giving to somebody who knows that they are being willingly helped. It's not just that they're receiving an entitlement. I think that there's just something special about that that's absent from welfare programs where, you know, people begrudgingly pay the taxes and then people are entitled to receive, you know, from that program and they get irritated with the bureaucrats who don't (laughs) grease the skids and make that happen as quickly as possible, right? And it's just totally... It sucks the blessing out of the whole transaction, right? And there is a blessing to ministering to others. And there is something wonderful about being able to help somebody else and choosing to do that and take something that's yours and use it to help somebody else. And we should do that. But when the government forces us to do it, it's not the same thing anymore. It loses its character. And part of the help that's more of a psychological help that, hey, somebody is reaching out to me and cares about me. And that's what happens in private charity. And it's just absent with the state. Yeah. I wonder if there's a way that we can get beyond mere charity and to a world where charity is highly minimal Mm -hmm. and very much, maybe not a thing of the past per se, because I think there's always going to be that sense of goodwill toward people who have less, because I don't believe we will get to a perfectly equal society in the sense that there won't be people with some level of need, even if that need is what what today we might not really call a need. But what do you think? Do you think there's a way that we can that we can get to a point where there's not as many poor people after all? Well, I think that we're already there, right? I mean, I mean, not entirely, but we've conquered poverty for the vast majority of the world. And that's not to say that it's not a serious problem and that we shouldn't continue to address it and that there aren't opportunities for ministry and for helping others. But I mean, just within our lifetimes, and we're not, you know, we're not that old, we'd like to thank me and you, Doug, right? Uh, <laughs> just within our lifetimes, there's been a serious improvement on how many people in the world are suffering from, you know, food insecurity. And even, you know, in our grandparents' lifetimes, you know, within the last 100, 120 years or so, it's just vastly different. And a lot of that just has to do with industrialization and technology coming online that magnifies the efforts of laborers and makes them more valuable and makes us all richer. And I think that that is the key. And by the way, uh, this also has to do with how education gets provided is that it is beneficial to a business owner, to an industrialist, if you want to use that word, when they have capable workers, right? When people are trained to be able to productively work in the line of work that they operate in. And so there are all sorts of comedies of, uh, you know, coincidental wants where people, because they both need something from the other, are going to help each other along. And that's how the system that God created, the you know, the market system, which is not a invention of, of man. I mean, this is operating under the natural law, and that's something that God invented. 
you know, and we should take a step back and realize, hey, maybe God knew what he was doing when he set up the laws of economics and he caused people to act based on incentives and to think about the future in a way that his other creatures don't do, right? (laughs) Yeah. Not not in a conscious, abstract way. Yeah. And, you know, we don't need to try to uh, reinvent a system that's already very elegant in a way that our systems are pretty clunky. You know, an indicator that what you said is correct is that there are so many people who get educated. They pay to get educated for things that do not make them more productive or wealthier. It's just for personal enrichment or just overall enrichment. Well, right. And it's it's education not as a capital good, but as a consumer good. Right. And the idea that some people are just naturally curious and derive pleasure from satisfying that curiosity. And that's great. And if that is where your passions lie, and I'll confess that's at least where a lot of my time is spent, maybe, maybe not all of it, but an awful lot. We live in a utopian, nearly utopian period in history to facilitate that, right? And what me and you are doing here right now, uh, that's an example of it, is uh, mm-hmm. just sharing little uh, things that we've read and thoughts we've had and others get to ruminate on that and expand on it. And we can and share and communicate in a, in a broader way than we've ever been able to do before. And education as a result, at least the self-motivated, self-directed kind of education that you could already sort of do with books, now it's just fantastically cheaper, right? I mean, a person can go to the public library and sit down with a cup of coffee if they lock coffee in the library and, uh, you know, have a pretty good day of self-education and answer almost any question. You know, if, if the answer is known to man, you can probably figure out either what the answer is or what you need to read to find it out, right? And it's just, it's an incredible opportunity. And, and we've seen things like MIT's classes, many of them now being provided for free and people can go through the whole, you know, uh, coursework of a number of these MIT classes if they're self-motivated enough to put in the time to do it. Now it's an awesome time. So there are a lot of other topics that we talk about in the book and even with respect to the idea of social justice, not just in this chapter, but in other chapters. So we are going to end this episode and in other episodes, whether you know past ones that we've recorded, we will talk about some of the other issues like racism, immigration, climate change, and we will see you on another episode. And Dick, I believe you and I are on for the next episode that we're going to talk about, which is uh, chapter 10, which is immigration. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.